Now we continue our series in Matthew's Gospel and we come to chapter 12 and we will begin reading at verse 22 through 37. Matthew chapter 12 beginning with verse 22. Will you bow with me in prayer before we read this portion of God's Word? Our Father, as we turn to your words and investigate its content and proclaim its truth and see Christ here and are called once again to the Redeemer by faith and repentance, we ask, Lord, that since there is here a very, very, very serious theme, that we would be caught by its seriousness and moved to the depths of our souls by the redemption that is ours in Christ and the triumph in grace that belongs to us as those who have believed in Christ and have trusted in the blood of the Lamb. Heavenly Father, you have a people called by your name, and we ask that this morning your people will grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and that those who may be among us who do not know Christ at all will put their trust in Jesus Christ, that your Spirit might grant them saving faith. And now, Father, as we turn to this text, may our attention be riveted upon this word, upon Christ who himself speaks through his ambassador, who opens the text to us, that we may be shepherded ultimately not by this under-shepherd, but by the great shepherd of the sheep who purchased us with his own blood. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, beginning with verse 22. This is the word of God. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. As we come to this text, we see that Jesus heals, and as he heals, those who are watching among the people say, is this not the son of David? Uh, They confess his name. Uh, They remember, for example, that Isaiah the prophet prophesied that when the Messiah came, he would heal in this manner. Then shall the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as in heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. But even though the people confess, the Pharisees accuse. And we read in verse 24, But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Beelzebul, Beelzebub, Beelzebub means lord of flies, essentially lord of filth. Beelzebul means the prince who is Prince Baal. You see what's happening here is that the Pharisees are actually identifying the person and work of the spotless Son of God with the devil. They are identifying Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, and his healing ministry, and all that he says and does with the evil one, with Satan himself. And in verse 25 we read, Jesus knew their thoughts. And he gives to the Pharisees four answers to the accusation that they have made. The first answer to their accusation has to do with the divided kingdom. That's first. He says, look, a kingdom that is divided against itself will not stand. Internal strife will destroy a kingdom. If Satan were casting out demons, he would be casting out himself. He would be destroying his own destruction. It is Satan's purpose to possess, to bind, to destroy. It is never Satan's purpose to heal and to restore, to redeem, or set free. Basically, then, you're pointing to yourself. If your sons cast out demons... Now, remember, we've seen that that in this time period, the Jews attempted to cast out demons by all kinds of superstitious rites. But Jesus is simply making a point. If your sons cast out demons and I do this to the destruction of Satan's kingdom, then by whom do your sons cast them out? Well, immediately the Pharisees would say, oh, well, they cast out demons by the power of God. And so Jesus is saying to them, therefore, don't you understand? I am casting out demons by the power of God. And he says, don't you see, don't you understand? What you're observing in what I'm doing and what I'm saying in all of my ministry, my person." You were observing that the kingdom of God has arrived. And so he says in verse 28, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If it is by the Spirit of God that this is happening, then this is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy and of all of the prophets and of all of the redemptive purpose of the Word of God. If I am casting out demons by the Spirit of God, then there is now the inbreaking of God's saving rule among men and women. There is the inbreaking of this great saving rule by which I am redeeming my people unto myself, the kingdom of God. The inbreaking of the saving rule of God has come upon you, and that's what you now see by casting out demons in this manner. 
Now, I ask you the question, do you realize that? Do you really understand, do you realize that the kingdom is here because Jesus has come? That in his coming, in his person, in his work, in casting out demons, healing the sick, in going to a cross, in his resurrection from the dead, the kingdom of God is now among us. Do you understand that even though you may not see what is happening in this world, God in his sovereign providence is gathering a people unto his own name, that the Lord Jesus is redeeming a people unto himself, that throughout the globe he is gathering unto himself from every tongue, tribe, kindred, and nation on earth those who will be a part of his kingdom that will last forever. Now we walk by faith and not by sight. You might not see this when you watch the news or listen to it on the radio. It might be obscured in various ways, but this is what the Bible teaches. This is what God's Word says. The kingdom of God has come. The day will come in which that kingdom will be openly manifest for all to see. O Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. We long for that day. We will see on that day the manifestation of the kingdom. But for now, in wondrous and quiet ways, through the word of God proclaimed, the witness of God's people, the gospel goes out into the world and the kingdom is here now. It is not only future It will be consummated in the future, but it is a present reality. Now Jesus says, if I were casting out demons by Satan, then Satan would be casting himself out. You know that's not the case. You know that's obvious that that's not the case. Second answer to their accusation that he's casting out demons by Beelzebul is he speaks of the plunder of the strong man's house. You see in verse 29 how he puts it. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Jesus then is teaching here that his exorcisms cannot be attributed to Satan. If Jesus did not exercise God's power, this could not be happening. Jesus is binding the strong man and is plundering his house. He has gone in in his sovereign power... And he has tied up the evil one, and he is removing the furniture from his house piece by piece. He is gathering his own people out of the house. His kingdom is here, it has arrived. And he has now bound Satan, and he is plundering the house of that strong man. Now here we have another encouragement. That encouragement for the people of God is, of course, that Christ is stronger than Satan. Of course he is. He's the second person of the Trinity, God himself, who came to this earth in order that he might accomplish the salvation of his people. But in that coming, he has dispossessed Satan of his possessions. Now, I think that this teaches us something. It teaches us as God's people that we are, on the one hand, to be aware of Satan, the evil one, the devil, and his work in this world, and even his work among us or in our lives. But on the other hand, we are not to give too much place to the work of the evil one in our lives or even in this world because the strong man has been bound by Christ and his house has been plundered. I think the way to see this is to remember that Jesus teaches us that when he went to the cross, there was a sweeping victory by the cross over Satan. 
and he says the prince of this world is cast out. But if we take that truth and reality, and then we go to the sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians, there we find the apostle Paul telling us that we do not wage war against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of the air, and therefore we are to put on the very armor that God gives to his people, which is his own, in order that we might do appropriate battle with the devil. So how do we bring these two things together? Christ in his coming has bound the strong man. Christ in his coming has in principle defeated him in his resurrection from the dead, and yet there is still the mopping up exercises until Jesus comes. So we take Satan realistically, we take him seriously, we know that he's at work in this world, but we also know that the devil is God's devil. He is under his sovereignty, under his providence, but also that he's conquered in the work that Jesus has done. Now that's the second thing that Jesus does. He says, first of all, the kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Secondly, I am the one who came, and in what you see me doing, I am binding the strong man, and I am plundering his house. But then he gives a third answer to the question, or to the accusation, that he is casting out devils by Beelzebul. And this, this one we're going to spend some time with. The third answer is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This is very serious. Often many people are confused about it. Many Christians are confused about it. But it is a very serious theme. In unpacking this, Jesus says, first of all, there can be no neutrality about me. In verse 30, he says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There can be no neutrality when it comes to me. By the way, he identifies himself as the Messiah harvester. Now, in the Old Testament, it is characteristic that Jehovah is the harvester, and now Jesus takes that to himself because he is Jehovah. He's the second person of the Trinity who became man without ceasing to be God in order that he might redeem us from our sins. And now he is harvesting his people. He is gathering his own in this age in which we live. But he says, you either gather with me or you scatter. There's no middle ground. There is no neutrality. You cannot be faced with the person and work of Jesus Christ and remain neutral. You may think that you're neutral, but your very neutrality is opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. And After he speaks of that neutrality, he says, listen, a blasphemy against the Son of Man, all sorts of blasphemies will be forgiven. In this life and in the world to come, they will be forgiven. They're horrible. They're awful. To think of blaspheming the Son of God, blaspheming the Father, blaspheming against the work that God does, these indeed are horrible, horrible things, but they are forgivable. Because there's not a person here who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ who at one point or another did not blaspheme the name of God. There is not one of us here who did not oppose him and withstand him and speak against him. Indeed, the scriptures taught teach us that we hate him from our very souls until we are redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb. It's a horrible thing. But let's never forget that Christ came to forgive sinners. 
He came to redeem sinners. We repeated together in our responsive reading, He does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Jesus forgives sins. We read together in Micah in our assurance of pardon. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Jesus has come to redeem sinners, to pardon sinners, to remove our sins, to justify us to cause us to be legally acceptable before the Father's very throne and to sanctify our hearts by His Holy Spirit. If you do not know Christ in the forgiveness of sins, this is the Christian message. We're not here to bring little pretties to you on Sunday morning, little moral essays to you on Sunday morning. We are here to proclaim that Christ has come to forgive sinners their sins. And all manner of blasphemy against the Son of Man and all manner of blasphemy in this world can be forgiven. No matter how deep your sin is, Christ can pardon your sin. Come to Him, trust Him, believe Him for the forgiveness of sin. Now that needs to be said. But there's something else that needs to be said. Because He says to these Pharisees, well, look at verses... 31, 32. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. What is Jesus saying? He is saying the Pharisees have been attributing the work of the Holy Spirit that is seen through Jesus. They have been attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan, to Beelzebul. They have not done this out of ignorance. They are fully conscious of what they're doing. There is here a self-conscious denial of the Holy Spirit's work. Now, I think we see this in other places in the scriptures. Keep your finger here and turn to the book of Hebrews, the sixth chapter. Now, remember, the book of Hebrews is really all about assurance of faith. But in the midst of Hebrews, there are also warning passages. And in Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6, we have one of them. Hebrews 6, beginning with verse 4, reads this way. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come if they then fall away since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Or in the 10th chapter of the book of Hebrews, verses 26 and 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, 
There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Or if we turned to 1 John 5.16, we would read of the sin that is unto death. Now what are these texts telling us? The seriousness of these texts is simply this. The Pharisees and others in the context of the covenant community are self-consciously denying the truth that they know to be true, denying the light that they know is shining, and denying the only means of conversion, who is the Holy Spirit. Now, as for apostates... You know, there's nothing that is more psychologically difficult to a pastor than someone who appears for a time to walk well and then falls away. It is so difficult to grasp, so hard to understand, so incredibly heartbreaking to see someone that you regarded as a sheep walk away from the faith. But as for apostates, the scriptures also teach us that they were never true believers to begin with. For true believers cannot fall away. But hear this. One can come very close to the kingdom. Tasting, perceiving, understanding many things, even enjoying many things that pertain to the kingdom of God. A person may come very close to the kingdom... Reject it all and cross that line of no return. John Gill, in his famous commentary, says this on this passage in Matthew. But the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men, by which is meant not every ignorant denial of and opposition to his deity and personality, nor all resistance of him in the external ministry of the word, nor every sin that is knowingly and willfully committed, but it is a despiteful usage of the Spirit of grace and opposing, contradicting, and denying the operations wrought or doctrines revealed by him against a man's own light and conscience, out of willful and obstinate malice on purpose to lessen the glory of God and gratify his own lusts, Such was the sin of the scribes and Pharisees, who, though they knew the miracles of Christ were wrought by the Spirit of God, yet maliciously and obstinately imputed them to the devil with a view to obscure the glory of Christ and indulge their own wicked passions and resentments against him. Which sin was unpardonable at that present time as well as under the dispensation then to come when the Spirit of God was poured down in a more plenteous manner by which Gil means now. And so Jesus is saying to these Pharisees who have accused him, the spotless Son of God, of casting out demons by the devil. He's saying to them, beware. You had better watch out. You had better beware. And the warning that comes through this text this morning is, the person professing a neutral position is moving in a very dangerous direction. Have you ever noticed that there were steps? 
Chapter 9 of Matthew, verse 11. This is when Jesus calls Matthew, the tax collector, to be his disciple. They didn't like it. The Pharisees didn't care for this at all. And they say in Matthew 9, 11, And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Chapter 12, verse 2. This is that passage when the disciples plucked grains of corn so that they could eat. In verse 2, chapter 12, when the Pharisees saw it, they said to Jesus, look at your, what your disciples are doing. They're, they're doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And then we come to chapter 12, verse 14. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. You see it, don't you? There's progress in evil. Their opposition grows. It becomes larger. William Hendrickson put it this way, For penitence they substitute hardening. For confession, plotting. Thus, by means of their own criminal and completely inexcusable callousness, they are dooming themselves. Their sin is unpardonable because they are unwilling to tread the path that leads to pardon. The blasphemy against the Spirit is the result of gradual progress in sin. And the Scriptures say today, Oh, that you would listen to His voice, harden not your hearts. Now, I say to you, that is very serious. That there can be a gradual movement into sin in such a way that a person, knowing that Christ is who he says he is, knowing that the Spirit of God truly works through him, yet will blaspheme the Spirit of God who works through the Savior. It's a very serious, serious sin. And I don't want to soften it. In the least, I could not be faithful and soften it. Nor do I want God's true children to be perturbed by it. Because I think that almost every Christian at one stage or other in his life goes through this questioning, could I have committed the sin against the Holy Spirit? Is it possible for me to commit this sin? And so let me say a word about that. First, no one commits the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in ignorance. Paul persecuted the church of God and thought he was doing God a favor. And God pardoned Paul the apostle. Secondly, it is not just unbelief or a mispersuasion that Jesus is talking about here. That is to say, it's not every sin against knowledge that Jesus is talking about here. But as one of the old Puritans, Obadiah Sedgwick, put it, there are three things, three horrible sins that attend the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And these three things are these. Total apostasy from Christ and the truth once tasted. Now these Pharisees were a part of the covenant community. They had heard and learned the word of God. They had tasted of the good things of God's kingdom in a sense. Jesus was there right in front of them. And there is a total apostasy from the truth that they know. 
malicious hatred of the truth once known. Malicious hatred of the truth once known. And then a final impenitence. He cannot repent. Not that any of us can without the work of the Holy Spirit, but these people have so walked away from the road that might lead to pardon. There is only one sacrifice for sin, and they have rejected him. No true Christian can commit the sin, but it is serious and it is frightening that there can be, even within churches that preach the gospel, real churches, true churches, there can be those who have hearts that grow cold, cold, colder, 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 and colder to the good things that they have tasted until that person just doesn't care. So be warned if it applies. Rejoice if it does not. Hell is hot. Heaven is sweet. And that's the contrast. But there's one final way in which Jesus responds to the Pharisees' charge. And he says, look at the fruit of your lips. Look at the fruit of your own lives. Look at verses 33 through 37 again. Let's read it. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And so Jesus looks at the Pharisees, and he says to them, the charge that you brought against me, that I'm casting out devils by Beelzebul, that very charge reveals what is in your wicked heart. Your conduct and your speech reveal the heart. Jesus, meek and mild, looks at these Pharisees and says, You are a brood of vipers. What you are is determining what you are saying. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth is speaking. Do you need a change of heart? What is the overflow of your heart that your mouth speaks? Does the overflow of your heart that your mouth speaks, not in perfection of course, but show that there is a radical change of heart that has come through the work of the Holy Spirit called the new birth? Or does it show that you need to be born again? That your heart has not been radically changed? Works and words do not save us, but they do display who we are. And that's what Jesus means in this passage when he says, 
your words, by your words you will be justified, by your words you will be condemned. They're evidences. They display who you are. And so do your evidences show that you must be born again? Or do your evidences show you have been born again? We don't rely upon our evidences. We rely upon Christ alone. But where Christ is really at work in a heart, that heart has been as is being transformed. And so the entire text, I'm sure you will agree with me, is very easy to understand. There's nothing esoteric here. There's nothing difficult. But it is intensely earnest and serious. Is it not? And it calls upon every sinner to turn to Christ crucified. Because our only hope for justification, for a right judicial standing on the day of judgment and at the present before the throne of God. Our only hope is the cross of Jesus Christ, his blood shed for sinners. Our only hope on that judgment day is that we stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Our only hope for renewed heart is the Holy Spirit's application to our heart of the cross of Jesus Christ to let me hold up that cross and hold it up high and call you to faith and repentance in Him to believe in Christ for Christ alone can save us from our awful sins. And if you are one of those who thinks He's neutral and your heart is growing colder and colder and colder and colder, oh, hear His voice and hear it today. Turn and repent today because this text shows that God... God sees no sin as a trifle. See it in view of the cross, my friend. Our sin laid upon Jesus, smitten of God and afflicted. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. It took the sacrifice of the sinless Son of God to pardon sinners from our awful sin. That's what Jehovah thinks of sin. That's what Jehovah has done about our sin in his love. He has given for his people a true satisfaction for sin and a true removal of condemnation in Christ. So unbeliever, if you hear these things and you are careless in your sin, do not be careless any longer. And believer, believer, if you know these things to be true, believe them even more and rejoice in them. Because unbeliever, the day will come If you do not believe and repent in Christ, and you're sitting here this morning, even if you've turned me off, the day will come in which you will stand before the judge of the living and the dead, the all-seeing eye of the all-holy and just God. And you will say, I have no righteous robe provided by Christ. I did not trust him. And you know that minister on that Sunday, that minister, he's free from my blood. Because he warned me, but I would not listen. And I am the cause of my own undoing. 